welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. My daddy came home. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Springer. Oh. You're just clapping because we called you brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I almost forgot to say that. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, because Megan Hills usually yeah, does that. A question, obvious question vacation is, time, always is, where's Megan? Because she's only here about every third show. She takes so many vacations. And I was going to claim she was on another vacation. She told me I could. The fact of the matter is, her, her dad, who is a friend of ours as well, and her mom, Great family, and her father had some pretty serious surgery today. He's going to be fine. He's, he's doing good. Yeah, he's going to be fine. But it was uh, kind you of know. a half-a-day deal, and so Megan obviously is with her father, which is where our thoughts are and where she should be. Yep. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, speaking of all that, how'd, you, how'd your TV show go on? What was the topic today? Because people always want to know that. That's one of the biggest Actually, question this, I get asked. Yeah, this week was the, the new season. Wow. Oh, it was unbelievable. Was it really? Yeah. As good as last season and the season before? Yeah, that well, was normally, it? and you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but normally we have young ladies dancing on a pole. Yes. This time we had her dancing on a Russian. Ah, but um, boom, hey, but um, boom. Oh, fine, you write some jokes. <laughs> Hey, you know what? what? Uh, last That's week. so stupid. You were, <laughs> I know. <laughs> You were out on the road doing political stuff, which you've been doing for many years. And people talk about, is Jerry running? Or they say, run, Jerry, run. They're talking about governor of Ohio. And we don't hide that. You've been asked by some pretty significant people in the state of Ohio to take a look at that race. And I know you are. And you'll figure it out in due course. But, and not because of that, but because you always do this, you travel around Ohio, often going to places where a lot of people don't go. Smaller some of the rural, places. Yeah, some of the rural, rural areas. Yeah. And I was able to join you, and I've done that with you over the years, and yeah. I was with you last week in Chillicothe, Ohio. Right. What a neat Great town place. that is. That really is. Excellent. Yeah. Very cool county and area. And we went to a place after you spoke called the Cross Keys. It's a restaurant. Good for you. I and, would not have, honestly, I would not have. Yeah, it was the name of it. Yeah. A Democrat, what we call a Democrat-owned restaurant, bar yeah. restaurant. Don't hold that against them if you're a Republican and from Yeah, there were coffee. Republicans there. Yeah, oh, well, there were. Yeah, they identified there themselves were. and they were taken away. And they were, <laughs> right. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It worked. At your request. Uh, very yeah. cool move, Jerry. Excuse me, sir. Very you'll classy. Yeah. You'll have to yeah. leave, yeah. Yeah. And, uh. Just out of nowhere, they asked you to, there was a, a Dixieland band. Oh, stop it. What do you mean, they asked? Well, they did ask. I found out that <laughs> there was a Dixieland out? band there, which, a by the one. way, they were a really good. good. Yeah. And, you know, they, they were just playing and performing, et cetera. And I laid about, and, you know, they said, come on up and sing a song. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, how would they know that I enjoy say or whatever or can even carry a tune or surround the notes we still don't know for sure after but after that <laughs> performance we don't <laughs> yeah. and then they tell me that you had gone up and say hey 
ask Jerry to come up and sing there. If we're thinking about politics, yeah. we're trying to win votes. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't have me go up there. And so we, it was uh, when you the Saints go marching in. Saints go marching in. And by the way, it really played well. Oh, and I right. knew that it would. I do do this because I know it will work. Yeah. And um, <laughs> they said to me right before they started the play, one of the band guys said, can he sing? And I said, well, we're going to find out. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And then when you finished... You didn't want to go out on the limb, did you? <laughs> no. Yeah. And then when, we, when you finished, the band uh, leader said into the mic, uh, Jerry, we'll get back to you. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like, come back next no, week actually, and do it again. It, it was actually, actually it was, it was outstanding. It played well. The audience loved it. And uh, that, I do believe, and I think this audience would agree, that is how you run for governor, isn't it? No, Listen to no, that. No. And, and that Gene Galvin should have a key role in the campaign, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. If I want, I've already promised you, uh, which is why I can't take a contribution for you, but right. you would be boxing commissioner. Yeah, that's a topic <laughs> I know a hell of a lot about. Yeah, you'd be just yeah, perfect for in that sure. role. And then you, you know, and I'll just let me know how your meetings go, because yeah, right. I could care less. No, I'm, I'm very interested. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting a, a lot of crap from corporate yeah. about, and I've said this before on this podcast, as a producer, I spend a good portion of my week on the phone with corporate just to keep the podcast in, in the image that they want. And uh, they're now bitching. They're claiming as they listen and that they listen regularly, they, they don't hear a consistency that they demand from their podcast. And they asked me a question. I wish that Megan Hills was here tonight because she is an HR professional. Yes. Highly trained. Human resources. She plays at the highest level of at that game. At the highest. And uh, they said to me, you do have, <laughs> yeah. They said to me, you do have a, an employee's manual, don't you, Gene? Okay, Mr. <laughs> producer what of the this hell? thing. Where I couldn't find one. I couldn't find one. I went through my computer. I looked around my home office. Maybe cat, a catfish. Are you here? He's out there. He's the owner of the Folk School Coffee Parlor. Maybe he has a copy of it. I don't. Of the manual of, of how the we're supposed to behave manual. here? The, yes. The, the whole set of protocols, procedures. One thing I notice is that when you sit down, they always give you a blue kind of cushion that you get to sit on. I don't have anything like that. I'm on just on an old cheap chair. Be that ought to be in the because employee's Because you're handbook. a hard butt. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but the stuff that should be in the employee's manual, yeah. we really we need have to get no some employee. thought to We that. have five people here. Yeah. Well, wait, I'm writing a check for about eight. Hey, <laughs> yeah, right. How come I'm writing a check for eight well, and I can uh, only count five? Yeah. Well, anyway, moving that? on. Uh, <laughs> another thing we ought to talk about. Hey, they also, corporate was bitching about, oh. you brought up What do you this mean guy. corporate? Where is corporate? I talk to them in our conference call once a week. I couldn't tell you where they are physically. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a 1-800 number kind of go to meeting kind of bullshit thing. <laughs> There's some code I type in, and then they say... Are you the only one on the conference no, call? No, trust me. There's, no. Why would it be a conference call? It's just you and them. <laughs> <laughs> Who else is in this conference? That's fair enough. It more than two people. That's fair Otherwise, enough. it's just a conversation. Today, they ripped me on a bit that you started. It's not a bit. It's a real thing. 
AskTheLifeGuard.com. I knew you started no, 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 it. I don't you even know it. the guy. And you came in here and you said, I, I know a guy. Which, that's always a bad intro. I know a guy. And then, yeah. so anyway, it's Ask the Lifeguard. People even sitting in our studio audience here at Folk School Coffee Parlor, Ludlow, Kentucky, go on your phones right now and just type in AskTheLifeGuard.com. There is a website. Yes. What corporate bitched about today was, is they said, when's the last time you've been on the website? Because you are always touting this website on your show, which we do. I went to it, and it's a picture of an empty lifeguard chair with a sign hanging on it that says, on break. There's no lifeguard there, just as, oh, he's on break. And well, they're this like, this is a great idea. Who took that picture and I, who I put it on know. the website? Well, is I don't this- know. I didn't make the website, askthelifeguard.com. It's his website. Yeah. But they said that doesn't connote a seriousness when the lifeguard as chair is empty. Else in our podcast does. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, anyway, I thought, in light of all that, I thought it might be a good idea. We should have on uh, Dr. Greg Schran next week. Let, uh, let's on have ask, him and next here's week. why. Uh, why End of the summer. Kind yes. of a recap. Oh, yeah. We'll want to know all the things that happened this summer right. swimming. Right. Right. <laughs> on, the, on the beach in uh, oh, yeah. Atlantic Ocean somewhere. Yeah. So for all of you who keep writing me about AskTheLifeGuard.com, it's on next week. What do you mean, all of you who keep writing? It's Name the one, one it, it's the one ever, topic. It's the one that gets what they really, the most emails of anything else. Well, that else. could mean we had two and, emails. No, well... <laughs> No, I mean, it, it, it has overwhelmed my server. Yeah, they, they, lo- they love yeah, the bed. Because he's they a, want to be safe He's a PhD in medieval literature, and he's a lifeguard because he can never get work, because that's a stupid-ass feel. Why would you go into medieval literature? So there's yeah. no work. So, so uh, you trust the judgment of this person? Well, he's got a doctorate from Rice University. He's, he's a serious dude. Well, I believe he's very serious about that, but I'm talking yeah. about judgment. He, well, I don't he know about that. He chose to choose a field... Which no one is hiring. Right. That's a fair point. I hadn't okay. thought through. See, you, you, you have a law degree. You think things through way yeah. more than I. I have an English degree, so I'm as yeah. stupid as he is. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah. it could be a different era of medieval. Maybe it's not medieval literature. You're more it's early medieval or <laughs> yeah. middle, middle yeah. medieval. No, I got. I listen. I yeah. got oh, my degree man. from Xavier University in English to do one thing: one day produce a podcast. And there you go. My gosh, you've met your dream. Has come through. By the way, <laughs> we're going to have on as our musical guest tonight. Yes. This is really cool. Yep. Uh, Harry Sparks. And Harry Sparks is well known in bluegrass circles, certainly in the Midwest and even beyond that. And, has, and he's also an architect and a darn good one and a luthier. And he's worked on, those are people who work on musical instruments, Jerry, yes. stringed yep. instruments. Yep. And he has done work on some major people's uh, D45 Martins, uh, whatever, uh, mandolins, etc. So he's very skilled luthier. Um, so we're going to have a chance to talk to him. And I, but I wanted to ask you something that's kind of a current event. The Republicans in the House and the Senate, first in the Senate, seem to be coming back with another whack at the ball on health care. And mm-hmm. yeah. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on whether that makes sense, whether there's an other way to skin the cat on this dilemma America faces of health care across the country? Well, the headline is, it's outrageous. Now, 
by the time most people hear this podcast, it'll either have failed, because it has to pass by this coming Friday. We're recording here on the 19th of uh, September. And, so, our, and our, it'll be in the archive like next Tuesday. Right. So you were right if they so, vote on a Friday. You know, this will either have passed or not passed. Uh, pray it doesn't. It's the latest effort at repeal and replace of Obamacare. And it's possibly the worst proposal that they put up because clearly what it does is, you know, they say, oh, we're going to still cover pre-existing conditions. But then what they don't tell you is that the insurance companies will have the right, if you have a pre-existing condition, there'll be no limit on what they can do in raising your premiums or your deductibles. So, and they can raise it thousands and thousands of dollars a month. So basically, yeah, they have to cover it, but if you can't afford the thousands and thousands of dollars in increased premiums, then obviously you don't have it. So, I mean, it's cruel. That's, you know, if you had to pick one word, it's cruel. And then they also reduce the amount of money for Medicaid. Okay. So it's horrible. And it's, it's indecent. And hopefully, by the time you hear this, you know, enough Senate Republicans voted, and we need three to vote against it, uh, so it doesn't pass. Hopefully, that happened. If not, I have no idea what people are going to do. I mean, I really don't. Imagine if this is you, 20, 30 million people lose their health insurance. And I'm not just talking about being off the rolls. I'm now also talking about they don't have health insurance anymore because they can't afford the premiums. And there's less Medicaid to take care of it. So it's horrible. So other than complaining about it and being outraged by it, what do we do? And... I have this feeling because, you know, I've been, Gina and I, we've been interested in politics forever and we're always, always going around giving speeches, fighting for causes. And even when I was in elective office for 10 years and I would ask people to vote for me and then I'd be, after the election, I'd be going into all the neighborhoods. And even when I was asking people to vote, I always felt a little bit guilty because when you'd hear their horrific stories about their lives, I kind of knew that, well, maybe we could pass some legislation or maybe we could do that. But really, I think the reason people drop out of being interested in politics and roll their eyes and think the whole system is rigged or stinks is because in most cases, you vote for someone and nothing in your life is really going to change. I mean, just in terms of the nuts and bolts, every generation, maybe something great happens. You know, we got Social Security back in the, in the 1930s. We got the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s. And uh, we got Obamacare, you know, which gave 20 million people health insurance that didn't have it. So every once in a while, there's something majestic that helps. But most often, you know, what hope do these people have? So here's what I'm thinking. And I started thinking about it. Literally, we were driving in the car, and I started thinking about it when we were talking about what was going on with Hurricane Irma and what happened with the hurricane that hit um, Houston. And it kind of reminded me, when there is a hurricane, or let's say up here in Ohio, a tornado, 
everybody, everyone in the country jumps in. No one sits around as people are being flooded out of their homes, roofs blown off their homes. No one sits around and says, well, okay, I'm going to really pass this legislation now. No one cares if you're a Democrat, Republican. You're a human being. Everybody helps. We had first responders coming from Columbus, Ohio, down to Florida. Everybody pitches in. If they need a place to stay, you put up a tent. You figure it out. You get food to them. You do whatever. And I'm wondering, with that kind of human decent response, where does that go a week or two after the tornado or the hurricane? And so I started thinking. I remember here in Cincinnati, it was either January of 76 or January of 77, and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember which of those two years, but there was an incredible blizzard which basically shut everybody in for a couple of weeks. And I was on city council at the time, and a group of us, you know, but we were barely 30 years old, a group of us, we started this group called Operation Deep Freeze. And we had to do something because people couldn't get out of their homes to get food, anything. So we knew in every neighborhood there was a firehouse. So I remember we said, look, who's ever physically able, because we were worried about shut-ins and older people, just bring whatever you can to the local firehouse. That'll be a collection place. And, you know, we'll have doctors there. And in fact, that was really when the impetus for fire departments becoming first responders to health issues. You know, it used to not always be that. If you were sick, you called an ambulance. But you notice now, whenever there's an emergency, a health issue, a fire truck shows up. That whole impetus, because the union was very much involved in it, came about because, well, the firefighters wanted, obviously, from their point of view, they wanted something more, they wanted to be needed more than just when there's a fire, and it was great, and they became first responders. I remember when we started this group, Cincinnati Reaches Out, in Ethiopia, people were starving there. Remember in the 1985, We Are the World, there was a drought for four years. There was no food and be, no water, no rain. There was a drought. And because of that, not only was no food growing, but there also was, there was no medicine. And because of the drought, people were getting diseases that we cured 50 and 100 years ago, yellow fever, malaria, tuberculosis, whatever. We had to get medicine over there. And these poor people, plus there's a war going on between Ethiopia and Eritrea that wanted its independence. So these are horrible conditions. People are dying. And no one sat around and said, well, what's the government going to do? So a bunch of us went over, and believe me, there were others all over the world. Everyone was pitching in. So we built a three-room health clinic on the Ethiopian-Sudanese border, right there in the middle of the desert. We got some nuns from the Kamboni mission to be the nurses, and people could go by there and at least get the medicine that they needed. The point of these examples is that when there is an emergency, we figure it out. So I would like to say there is a primary health care emergency in America that has been going on for a couple of genera at least a couple of generations now. And all we do is talk about what the latest piece of legislation is going to be doing. And then there's so many other interests involved, financial interests. So I'm saying 
I don't want to wait for it. I can't promise you that we'll have a Democratic Congress after this election. I can't promise you that you'll have a Democratic president or a Democratic governor or a Democratic state legislature. We can't wait for that. We may not have it. So knowing that and know that we have to have primary health care, what can we do? So here's an idea. And I don't have all the details, but here's an idea of what I think could work. It's part of a concept I have of what I call the three-legged stool, the three things that every, every state would need, every community would need, and that is employment, health care, and schools. You know, you want the employment so you can provide for the family, you want health care so you can protect your family, and you want schools so that you can prepare your kids for the future. Okay, so what do we do? Why not say within 10 or 15 minutes of every single resident, it could be of this state, any state, within 10 or 15 minutes, there has to be a health care clinic. It could be a three-room building, a health clinic in every neighborhood. Now, you have to staff the health clinic, right? So let's say you get a card. In Ohio, it would be a Buckeye card. In Indiana, they'll have their own card. But with that card, if you are a resident of that state, you are entitled to go to that clinic and on a sliding scale from no payment, if you have no money, to a little bit or someone like me, you'd pay the full ride. You can go that for primary care. You still have the hospitals for operations and things like that. But for primary care, where you see the same people every time you go, and they can deal with your, your problems before it becomes really serious, the primary care physician, the family doctors, which we don't have very many anymore, in everybody's neighborhood with 10 to 15 minutes. Now you say, well, that's great. Where are you going to get the doctors? Where are you going to get the nurses? So we say, I tell you what. You agree to a doctor or a nurse. You agree to be part of the staff of this clinic, which is in rural areas, areas that don't have clinics around, for example, or certain poor sections of town, whatever. You agree to do that. We will pay for your medical school education, or if you've already been to medical school and you have these huge loans that you've got to pay back, we will compensate you for that if you give us three years at this clinic. So now we have a clinic in every neighborhood. We have the doctors and the nurses that will come in. They'll mostly be young doctors right out of medical school or whatever. But you be primary care physicians for three years, at least. Now, some will stay. But as they leave, we bring in more new ones. And so ultimately, then the question gets, well, how are you going to pay for this? And I'll tell you how we do it. Well, first, there'll be some money we get from the state budget. There'll be some money we get from Medicaid. There'll be money that I think we should get from the private sector by setting up a foundation. Almost make it a national campaign, just like we had VISTA and the Peace Corps, where we go to colleges and we go to schools and we say, you know what, because you're idealistic at this age. This is something you can get involved in, whatever your career is going to be later on, but come on, let's contribute three years of your life after graduation or to set up a foundation where anyone in this country 
can contribute to the foundation, all of the funds of which will go to fund these various clinics, very specifically. So you go to Procter & Gamble, you go to General Electric, you go to all these big companies. This is something you can do that impacts the community you're in, the state you're in, the region you're in. All this feeling that we have when there's a tornado and you don't ask any questions, you just want to help. Look at the money we're raising now in the private sector to take care of this. Well, what if you had a, a foundation? There could be people that leave money to this foundation in their wills. There are all kinds of ways you can set it up. But just say that we, the people, are going to take control. We're not going to wait for the politicians anymore. We are going to take control and make sure, number one, that in every community in this country, there will be a doctor or nurse that you can go to for primary care. That is worth doing, and there's no reason we can't figure out how to do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jerry Springer for City Council, the city of Ludlow. Oh, that's a... <laughs> hey, you know what? That, you just gave me a great... Uh, that's an interesting thought. Because why are we just looking to the federal government or even the state government? Every village, every city council, every community can give some portion of their tax dollars, just some, you know, make each year, make a contribution to the clinic in your neighborhood. Every institution should do that. Universities should do that. City councils should do that. State government, federal, everybody. It doesn't matter anymore where the money... I don't want to get into an argument, what's socialism, what's capitalism? Screw it. Your kid needs a doctor. Just let's get it done. It's not like we don't know how to do it. Look what we're doing in Florida and Houston. For God's sakes, let's just do it ourselves. We know how to do it. Yeah, second round of applause. Oh, my God. And furthermore, no, I just love the applause. It's so cool. Hey, let's hear it for Harry Sparks. <laughs> Harry, thank you for being here tonight. You're more than welcome. Let me uh, give you an introduction here and clean it up if it needs it as I go. But <laughs> your, uh, you have roots in the Cincinnati area that go back to the 60s when you came here as an architectural well, student. Let me, let me say, uh, yeah. I, I came from Murray, Kentucky. Okay. Where as a, a youngster, I went to uh, some grade school, high school, and three years of engineering school All right. at Murray where I decided to become an architect and got one transferable hour to UC. Wow. So I started over as a freshman. At the University of at Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati and their architectural in 1961. School. That's when I came here. Now, let's bring folk music into this, too, and let's remind uh, younger listeners that in the late 50s and early 60s, there was an explosion of folk music that came from Pete Seeger and the Weavers in the mid-50s and early 50s, but then it exploded on college campuses and into what we call the commercial market. Right. Joan Baez, Bob Dylan later, uh, the Mitchell Trio, and we're gonna, I want to bring them up in a second because you relate to that, uh, Kingston Trio, et cetera. And you were uh, a young guy getting a degree at University of Cincinnati, but you played, you liked folk music, and you formed a group, correct? Yes. And you were performing as far back as in the early 60s in Cincinnati. That's correct, yes. 
Now, as you go forward, by the way, y'all should know that he became, has now become very well known in the bluegrass community. And he's kicked around with some people of the likes of Sam Bush and uh, J.D. Crow, uh, Vince Gill. You became a luthier along the way. Uh, so you had a full career in architecture, but at the same time, you were still playing music, loving music, etc. And Jerry Springer was a member of the Queen City Balladeers. I was as well in these early days, and so were you. You were one of the right. founding yes. members. Real fast, Queen City Balladeers, longest-standing folk organization in America. And it brought together a lot of folkies who formed a lot of groups and played some music. So uh, we're so happy that you're with us because of that history and your skills. Do a song for us. And your well, first before I before I yeah. sing something, I want to say that I'm a lot better at fixing instruments than I am at singing. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, then why don't you just fix an instrument? <laughs> <laughs> well, watch. Luckily, you fix this guitar's not broken. <laughs> hey, now this is one that you, you wrote with your brother. Is that correct? Right, right. My brother wrote the main song, and then I tinkered with a couple of the words. And when uh, when he put it uh, in the BMI or whatever you put music to be yep. copyrighted, uh, he actually put my name on it. It was very generous of him because it's 98.9% of his. <laughs> and okay, and it's called Nobody Special. Nobody Special. Harry uh, Sparks. He wrote this while working on a doctorate. Now, he's not your basic hillbilly in Nashville. He was yep. working on a doctorate in comparative literature at Vanderbilt. There you go. He's oh, going to ask the lifeguard he's kind of guy. He's going to be a lifeguard. <laughs> yes. Uh, he actually turned out to be a teacher. <laughs> All right. Harry Sparks doing Nobody Special. That old clock on the wall Don't slow down at all Lord, it's making an old fool of me I sip on this drink I just happen to think You might be as lonesome as me For I'm nobody special To nobody special I'm sitting all alone Can't you see I'm nobody special to nobody special Won't you be special to me? You've heard all the lies you're 
I might not be free Yes, true love once was mine It's faded with time It's part of ancient history Now I'm nobody special You're nobody special We're sitting here alone, can't you see? We're nobody special To nobody special Won't you be special to me? Love won't you That, I was, you can understand why I can't relate to that, but it is just, <laughs> it, no, that is beautiful. Honestly, that That's is very beautiful. Good yeah. Hey, uh, back in that time period when the Queen City Balladeers were happening, and as I said, 1963 it began, you were a founding member, and in that explosion of the popularity of folk music, this group called the Mitchell Trio had been called the Chad Mitchell Trio. Chad Mitchell left the group, and a guy, young guy, came in to replace him named John Denver. No, John Dusseldorf. John Dusseldorf. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And they played in Cincinnati, by my memory, maybe three times, a couple times at UC, University of Cincinnati, one time at Xavier. Whenever they came in to play, it wasn't me, but people like you and Mike Zorchek and some other people who formed the organization – created a friendship with those guys, and I went to a number of after-concert parties, after-parties at somebody's apartment, and they'd bring in some kegs of beer, or some cases of beer, actually, and put them in the middle of the room, and the Chad Mitchell, the, the Mitchell trio, including Denver, would sit around that beer and jam all night. That's true, isn't That's it? That's true. What, the way it happened in the beginning, That's a great uh, story. Mike Swercheck, uh now called Mike Sylvester. He took on his brother's middle name. Yep. But uh, Zwerchek, I can still remember Z-W-E-R-T-S-C-H-E-K. I'd learned to spell it. It took me hours. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Mike was with the Mitchell Trio helping them unbutton over at uh, Wilson Auditorium. And uh, Paul Prestopino pulled out his banjo. And now he was the backup musician. He was the backup that. musician. He'd been with New Lost City Ramblers with Mike Seeger and all that group years ago and was a very accomplished musician. And he played mandolin, guitar, and banjo equally well, all excellent. And uh, he pulled out his banjo, and lo and behold, something had gone wrong with the fifth peg. Now, I wish my memory was good enough to remember what, but it, uh, Zwerchek said, let's call Sparks. <laughs> and they said, where's his store? I said, well, he, he's an architecture student. What? And they said, yeah, he, believe it, he'll, he'll fix it. So. There were no cell phones in those days. Just by good fortune, they caught me at home. And I grabbed up the what I figured were the right tools and went over and fixed his banjo behind stage in Wilson Auditorium. And they said, boy, this is really great. Thank you. Can, uh, can we give you some free tickets for you and your wife or anybody else to come to the concert tonight? And I said, well, I really appreciate it, but uh, I won't be able to join you. And they said, you know, there were really were offended you could tell yeah and i said uh, I'm, I'm very sorry really and they said well what do you have to do and i said well i'm in a band and we have a gig <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and i'm i'm up here at the other end of campus 
and the Candlelight Cafe, Hoagie's Candlelight Cafe. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a was not a knife and gun club. It was an actually an upstanding yeah, yeah. saloon and yeah, uh, college bar. So anyway, um, they said, "Oh, well." Then they all felt better. You know, I was a fellow musician now, and they said, "What about uh, what time do you play?" And I said, "Well, I start at nine, and your warm-up band won't be done by the time you know I'll, I have to start work." They said, "How late do you play?" And I said, two. I can't even stay up till two o'clock now. <laughs> and uh, two o'clock in the morning. Oh, they said, "Do you mind if we come down and jam with you then?" Nice. And we said, "Oh, whatever." Good. And yeah. uh, here they came at about eleven thirty, yep. and played with us for about two and a half hours. And uh, so we met this guy John Dusseldorf, and he was real nice. And he and I really hit it off because he was an architecture student. Aha. And a lot of people don't know that about him. Yeah, no. But that's what he studied. And he had a gorgeous house in, in uh, Aspen yeah. later on. He didn't design it. He hired a, somebody to do it for him. But anyway, John, uh, then, you know, we had a big time, sang together, had a ball. And fast forward a couple of years later, and phone rings, and... He said, hey, Harry, this is John. Uh, you worked on Paul's banjo. You remember that with the Mitchell Trio? And I said, oh, yeah, you're John Dusseldorf. He said, no, no, I've changed my name. He <laughs> said, I went out to Colorado, and I just love Colorado so much, I changed my name to Denver. And I yeah. said, really? And they said, yeah. And he said, I, I got a favor to ask. My guitar's rattling. And I'm playing a coffee house tonight. I'm trying to get it to quit, and I don't know what to do. Could I bring it over? So he came over to the house in a cab, because none of us had transportation those days. We were all poor. And uh, he came over to the house, and while I fixed his guitar, he and I talked. And uh, I may get misty telling this part, but as long as he was alive, if he did a concert within a stone's throw where we lived, yep. he always called or had John Summers or one of the other band members call and, and give me as many backstage passes and nice? tickets as I asked for. Yeah. That's very nice. And, That's a great uh, story to hear. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know you've worked on instruments and have, have had associations with a lot of significant people, uh, oh, J.D. Yeah. Crow, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. and uh, Sam Bush, et cetera. Uh, and you're still, just last thing, I want to ask you to do a second song. Uh, you still are playing music, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I just sit in with the, the Northern Kentucky Bluegrass Band about you know, once a year. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I played down at Friendship, Indiana, around the fireplace. Uh, we have a fire pit down there, and we played for three or four hours. Guys came in from Louisville. So, I, but it's it's all casual, or yeah. you know, occasionally yeah. somebody's got a little fundraiser and they want me to get up and make some noise, and I do that. All right, do a second song, and I think you're going to yeah. switch over to uh, banjo, as I recall. That's and right. I'm going to switch over to a banjo here. This is an interesting banjo. It was. Uh, it's a gut-strung banjo. It was made in 1890. Yow. And this is a traditional song called Sweet Sunny South, correct? Right. Uh, the story behind this, if I've got time to tell it, is real fast. Is a, is, I believe a man came up from Florida. He worked in Ashland Oil in Ashland, Kentucky, Valvoline. And uh, he was kind of a quiet guy. He got in a little bluegrass band there. And when he got to retire... He said, I've written a song, and they had a retirement party for him, and he sang it, and it wasn't a dry and a quarter mile. Huh. 
called Sweet Sunny South. All right, here we you go. Harry Sparks. The, the words if you listen to them. Sparks, and uh, by the way, I'm going to ask David if you could do something, because Jerry Springer, if Harry, if you'll let him, will join you on the second verse as you take us out on Down by the Riverside. Of course, of course. And I want to ask David to play a little bit of a song called Save Union Terminal. Well, that's irrelevant to this. Many years ago, you helped save an historic building in Cincinnati, the old train station. Well, let's tell it like it is. I 
we were trying to raise money to save the terminal. Correct. And so some reporter for the Cincinnati Post at the time wrote this song, Save the Union Terminal, and came to city council where I was and said, why don't you sing it and make a record out of it? Yep. And the proceeds from the record will go to help save the terminal. And thanks for doing it. And I would we like saved one doorknob. One doorknob. <laughs> Uh, my reason for asking people or asking David Proust to play it is to let people hear how you sounded in 1975, maybe. It was 1972. 1972. And then this I want them I to remember very this. Very masculine When voice, they hear you sing notice. Down by the Riverside. Play a little bit of that, David. Jerry Springer, uh, Save Union Terminal. 1972. A little after puberty. They built her back in 33 when the railroad man was king. Depression bound folks came to town. <laughs> sounds like a teenage woman, doesn't it? I mean, in all fairness, it sounds like a young woman. In the cities large and small, the God knows Union Terminal was the grandest of them all. Everybody now. Save the Union Terminal. All right, thank you, David. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's Jerry Springer. Yeah. Mm. All right, that, now, now hear Jerry on this second verse. Harry yeah. Sparks taking us out on Down by the Riverside. I'm going to lay down my heavy